Welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast, the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money with your host, Pete Mikaitis. Hello, and thanks so much for joining us here for episode 126 with Dr. Melanie Greenberg. Melanie has some great wisdom when it comes to dealing with stress. She is a true expert in the field, and she's going to share, one, the key differentiators that make stress enriching versus debilitating, two, how meditation practices provide helpful distance between you and your thoughts, and three, the stop and rain methods, yes, those are acronyms, for bringing mindfulness into situations. So if you'd like to check out the show notes or the transcript or the links to items mentioned, you can find that over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash ep126. And while you're there, I recommend you check out some of the cool stuff from our 10 Days to Winning at Work email course to slash waste out of your work week to the Gold Nugget email summaries, which offer the insights of the guests in an email you can read in under two minutes each morning that there's a new guest coming out. Here's a story about Melanie. Dr. Melanie Greenberg is a practicing psychologist and executive coach in Marin County, California, and an expert on managing stress, health, and relationships using proven techniques from neuroscience, mindfulness, positive psychology, health psychology, and cognitive behavioral therapies. With more than 20 years of experience as a professor, author, researcher, clinician, and coach, Melanie has delivered talks and workshops to national and international audiences, businesses, nonprofits, and professional organizations like the American Psychological Association. She writes the Mindful Self Express blog for Psychology Today, which has more than 8 million page views. A popular media expert, she's been featured on CNN, Forbes, BBC Radio, ABC News, Yahoo, and Lifehacker, as well as in Self, Red Book, Women's Health, Men's Health, Fitness Magazine, Women's Day, Cosmopolitan, and The Huffington Post. She has been featured on radio shows and numerous podcasts, with almost 50,000 followers, Melanie was named one of the 30 most prominent psychologists to follow on Twitter. Here's Melanie. Melanie, thanks so much for joining us here on the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast. You're welcome. I'm excited to be here. Oh, yes. I'm excited to have you here. And it sounds like you had some travel excitement when we were emailing earlier. You were in Puerto Vallarta. What's the backstory there? My daughter and I went to Mexico for our vacation. It was our first trip to Mexico. And had lots of frequent flyer miles, and we had a good time swimming and lying in the sun and eating lots of tropical fruit. And we even went on a speedboat and swam in a waterfall. So oh, that's that was fun. fun. Indeed, yes. That She's is a good time. She's a teenager, so, uh-huh. uh, so she likes to do active stuff. Well, and you're still cool enough that that's a fun idea for her, apparently. Yeah, I don't know about next year, but for this year, I'm still cool enough. <laughs> That's great. Well, take it while you have it. And I also exactly. enjoyed, in reading your Psychology Today bio, you have a mini Aussie Shepherd that was worthy of a mention there. So what's the story with this beloved pet? She's looking right at me. Uh-huh. Well-behaved, she, not too much noise. Yeah, she's well-behaved when she's had a long walk. If she hasn't had a long walk, she tries to drag me out take shoes and shepherd me out the door. Uh-huh. But yeah, her name's Ariel because my daughter, we got her when my daughter was three and my daughter named her after the little mermaid. Oh, now the fun. name is a bit old, but we love the dog. She's just so loyal. <laughs> Wherever I am, she just always follows me, lies down right next to me, snores. 
she even comes in the bathroom, I have to kind of keep her out. <laughs> well, that's fun. It also, and it hopefully is a stress managing, helpful addition to life, the pet love fun. So, well, I'd love to talk about stress here. You've got this fresh book out, The Stress Proof Brain, and you've got a host of credentials and writing under your belt in the universe of psychology. And so I'm curious to hear, you know, what made you choose the emotional response to stress as a key topic for you to really dig your energies into and write a full book? Well, I've experienced a lot of transition in my life and events that are kind of, you know, came upon me that weren't necessarily predictable or asked for. And some that were, some that were stressed by choice kind of thing. I grew up in South Africa towards the last 20 years of apartheid. So immediately there was stress in the society and there was this tension in the streets and they were having a very privileged life in some ways, but there were all these other suffering people. And, you know, everybody, there was silence around it. Like, there was no freedom of press or speech. And certainly my family, you know, didn't talk about it in the way that I would have liked to. And then I left South Africa when I was 26. All my friends were leaving because there was violence. People didn't like apartheid. People didn't want to go into the army. And so there was a lot of turmoil. And I think that's what led me to be familiar with stress at quite a young age. But then I came to the U.S. to study psychology. And, you know, that was my passion. And I was really honored to get in here and I got a scholarship. So it was also a positive, challenging kind of stress. I had both kinds of stress. But that laid the foundation, I think. Mm -hmm. Yes. And so I guess I'm curious, like in the universe of all these psychological topics, you thought that, you know, stress in particular is something that you want to dig into. And so I guess I'm curious to learn, you know, what is it about this topic that makes you say, oh my gosh, this is so important and has to be fleshed out in some detail? So, you know, I also see in the workplace and in relationships with my clients and in life, how the inability to manage stress can derail people, even, you know, very high functioning people that, in moments, stress is it's very rapid and it sways people off balance. It's that fight or flight response in the brain because we were wired to kind of fight, be ready for a tiger to attack us. You know, that's what our ancestors faced. So we get this very quick biochemical response that can kind of sway us off balance and make you do things that you regret, like shouting, you know, at somebody, shouting at your boss or or shouting at your partner or sending off an email that wasn't wisely written. And stress can also make you freeze and procrastinate and avoid. And so I've just seen, you know, how stress, that can get in people's way a lot if they don't know how to deal with it. Burnout, you know, people get demoralized. But then on the other hand, stress is also, you know, what kind of peps you up and gives you the energy to take on, you know, amazing challenges that are meaningful and grow and dream and, you know, get other people excited. So I was really interested, you know, in these sort of two aspects of stress. Oh, yes, absolutely. So I'd be curious to hear, you know, what makes the difference between whether we have a nice peppy energy, happy kind of response and impact from the stress versus where we're beat down and having some not so rosy outcomes. So I think there's a couple of things. One is controllability. 
And, you know, I think in animal studies, animals and monkeys and rats and humans, when there's stress that we can't predict or can't control, it hits us much worse. You know, that's the kind of stress that gives the animals the stomach ulcers hmm. when it's at random intervals and they don't know when it's coming and whatever they do, they can't shut off the stress. You know, in studies, they do electric shock, which is horrible, but that's what they do. So for here, you know, I think it's if you feel out of control, if you feel you don't have the skills or the resources to manage the situation, I think that can make a difference versus feeling but more confident, having life experience of, you know, maybe managing stress in the past and having support and knowing that you can exceed and kind of being excited about the outcome versus the outcome just being a potential loss. Well, that is really an interesting point right there. And so you talk about the animal studies in electric shocks. The unpredictability is what causes some all kinds of, you know, bad news with the ulcers and such. So if they administer the shocks in a kind of predictable every five minutes on the dot, there's a shot kind of a thing that works fine for them. Well, they don't like it, (laughs) (laughs) but they, they don't have as bad longer term effects. And the reason is that there's a safety period. So say the shock is coming every five minutes. You know, you have four minutes of peace where you can wind down a little bit during those four minutes. Whereas Mm -hmm. if you don't know when it's coming, there's no peace, there's no safety zone. And the other piece is controllability. So what they do is they have one group of animals that can turn off the shock by pressing a lever or something. And there's another group that can't turn off the shock. The shock just gets turned off when the other animal does it. So whatever that animal does, it can't influence the shock in any way. Mm. And so those animals have it worse because it's that feeling of helplessness. Whatever I do, I can't take this thing away. I can't do anything. Okay, understood. So that's some key variables there, the controllability and the predictability. What else makes a difference? I think meaningfulness makes a difference. And if you see a capacity for growth, you know, is this a situation that I can actually expand, be expansive, expand myself, expand my world? Can I grow and learn from this, even though it's challenging? You know, can it take me closer to my goals? Can it take me to new heights? The analogy might be the stress of climbing a mountain. My daughter and husband went to Yosemite last spring and they climbed this really high peak. And, you know, it's scary, but there's this invigorating challenge about it. So I think that makes a difference. I think it's your personality as well. If you're kind of a more able to take the challenge, able to tolerate stress in the service of, you know, your goal. Mm -hmm. Some people are wired that they get more anxious and that's not for them. So I think that makes a difference to how enthusiastic you are about it, how meaningful it is, how committed you are to it. If you feel a sense of commitment, something you chose versus something that, you know, was kind of just placed upon you. An example might be, you know, you might choose to take a new job because of the mentorship and the skills you'll learn and the opportunities to serve the public and to do meaningful things. Or, you know, your company might just merge with a big conglomerate, which has happened to a lot of my clients, and it wasn't chosen, and it's not meaningful. Those two experiences are very different, even though both people might be working equally hard. Okay, interesting. That's quite intriguing how you identified a few key variables that make the difference sort of associated with the nature of the stress itself. So now can you share a bit about, you know, our response? You know, I think that 
in reading through your book that seems to be a core idea there is that it's really about how you respond to that situation and thing that causes stress that makes a world of difference. So maybe you could start by sharing the dark side. You know, what are some of the unhealthy responses that folks, you know, all too often go to when hit with a stress? So there's lots of them, and I'm sure we're all familiar with them. So the one category is freezing. The biological response to stress, they call it the fight, flight, freeze response. It's like you either go into flight where you want to run away, fight where you kind of get irritable or aggressive and impulsive, or freeze is just where you feel helpless and kind of stuck. So, you know, freezing, like not being able to act, not being able to make a decision, procrastinating, lacking confidence, that's one kind of an unhealthy response. And that can lead to avoidance which is you know, also unhealthy. You might avoid dealing with the problem and put it off and then the problem gets worse and worse, kind of like a pile of unpaid bills that you haven't opened the envelopes. Or you might you know, avoid confrontation and that can make things worse because you don't get your needs met or you don't change a bad situation. And then when it comes to avoidance, I think people also use alcohol a lot to mm-hmm. avoid and that's been shown to be a really unhealthy response. And often men use alcohol to a greater degree than women statistically, but both men and women use it. So what happens with the alcohol, it, can, it brings your mood down. It's a temporary relief, but it causes a whole host of other problems, damage to your health if it's too heavy a level. And then sometimes people do emotional eating, you know, or lying on the couch, you know, vegging in front of the TV for hours and hours and kind of, you know, not taking care of their health. Other unhealthy responses are the more in the hostility, like in the more sort of the fight. Because again, we get wired through adrenaline and cortisol, the brain chemicals, to fight off a predator. That's what, you know, originally the stress response was meant for. So, you know, people get hostile and mean and aggressive and and all of those things turn other people off and create a more stressful environment for themselves because now other people don't like them. And then, you know, there's the kind of the overwhelm as well, where you just get overwhelmed with anxiety, your heart starts pounding, you feel it in your chest and your stomach and your belly and your body just, you know, kind of goes into this chronic state. And that can get in the way of functioning and be very uncomfortable. It can interfere with your sleep. And finally, there's this worry response where we get into our heads mm-hmm. And you just like repetitively ruminate and worry over and over and over again about all these bad things that are going to happen. And that doesn't help. That kind of just makes us feel more helpless and worse. Oh, thank you. And that's what I wanted to dig into. I guess that's my story is like, I don't personally, you know, find that I go to lashing out or alcohol or hours of TV or Netflix or whatever, but it is mostly internally. It's the thoughts I'm having that I can recognize afterwards or with a little bit of distance, if I sort of take a look at what I'm thinking about, that this isn't so helpful. And so you mentioned, you know, one thing is the ruminating, the worrying, like, oh my gosh, this could happen, this could happen, this could happen. You know, what are maybe some of the other ways and maybe even feel free to narrate, you know, having worked with many, many clients, feel free to narrate a little bit. What are some sort of suboptimal internal thoughts that maybe we should be on the watch out or the lookout for. It's like, oh, if you're hearing these, it's time to take a time out and do something. (laughs) Oh, yeah. This is one of my topics that I have a lot of experience with because I just see this all the time with clients. One of the big ones 
because people criticize themselves and the inner critic, people beat up on themselves and they get really hard on themselves. And so there's this kind of conditional feeling like, you know, well, if I manage to get this job, then I'm okay. But if I don't manage to get this job, it means I'm a total failure. And so they put so much pressure on themselves or else they might sort of get into a regretful state and, you know, like, why did I get, how did I get in the situation in the first place? You know, I should have made a different decision. I should have done something different. I should have acted quicker. And so they go back and like, you know, try to undo all the decisions they made and feel really bad about themselves. Whereas in fact, you know, hindsight is twenty twenty. They may have done the best they could at the time. And that's what I try to tell them and work with them on. The other thing is people get in, make these cognitive errors. They get into black and white thinking, like, you know, all or nothing. So, you know, like all is lost. Like if I get into a financial crisis, all is lost. And then they forget, you know, to sort of remember the good things that are still in their life. Like maybe they have to go down in their standard of living, but maybe they still have people that love them. So I'm trying. There's also a kind of a scarcity mindset where research shows that, and I've seen this with clients as well, if you feel a sense of lack or scarcity, it actually makes you worse at solving problems because you're putting out fires. You get a very short-term time frame. Like, oh, let me just, you know, put this on a credit card. That would be one example. Mm -hmm. You know, but then it, it builds up and that may not be the best strategy for the long term. But, you know, because you feel scarcity, like you've got to do something now. It makes you kind of panicky and makes you make not the best decisions. So that's another mindset. And then there's a kind of a pessimism, you know, where you see the glass is half empty. And then there's a, just a kind of a repetitive thinking where you just have the same theme. Like I am a failure or, you know, other people don't like me or I'm not competent. And you have see a lot of thinking just around this kind of core theme that may have come from an earlier experience in childhood or you know, some significant experience that the person may not even be aware of. Hmm. Interesting. And so if you have that going on, what are the steps? Is there's like a stop, drop and roll or how do you kind of get back in the right groove? Yeah. So, you know, there's different levels of it depending, you know, how deep you want to go, I suppose, or how long your therapy is. But the immediate thing to do is just to notice that you're ruminating, like try to get away from the content because the content is often not helpful. It's just your brain regurgitating all this, you know, negative stuff. So you've got to try to get some distance and not just think about the content, but try to think about the process. You know, I'm ruminating. It doesn't matter what I'm thinking about. This is not helpful for me. So I've got to, you know, not let all my attention get dragged into this and let it sway me off balance. So let me find something else to think about. You know, it's easier to distract yourself and think about something else than it is to say, well, just stop thinking about this. Okay. So that's one thing is label the process. The other thing is to try to get some distance from your thoughts so it doesn't feel like, you know, that's your whole reality. And mm -hmm. mindfulness, which is practicing meditation, but it's also an attitude towards living where you breathe, you take a break, you try to bring in a more compassionate, more sort of broader perspective. That can be very helpful. And, you know, also maybe getting feedback, you know, going to somebody who cares about you and running it by them, that can help with the inner critic. So those might be some immediate coping strategies. And then you could think about, well, what happened to me early in life or what happened in my childhood, like around this theme, mm -hmm. you know, and might I be reacting to that, like a feeling of not being safe, for example. Understood. Yes. And so 
Let's talk a little bit more. So getting some distance from your thoughts, you talked about some mindfulness, some meditation, some breathing. So I guess in practice, if you know I'm having some thoughts like, oh my gosh, I blew this. What am I going to do now? I don't have this money coming in. You know, something mm-hmm. it's happening in there. So what's the scoop? I first take a breath or how would you kind of guide me in detail in terms of what to respond with that? So, I mean, a simple thing you can do is you can think of the word stop. S-T-O-P, which is a mindfulness kind of a practice. So S stands for just stop. Whatever you're doing, stop. And that's just to kind of get you untangled from the cycle. And also because the threat center of your brain, the amygdala, is what sort of is often reacting to this immediate stress. And you need to take some time so you can get your executive functioning on board, which is the prefrontal cortex just behind your forehead. That's more responsible for the slower, rational, more integrative thinking. So just stopping can give yourself time to get like those more functional parts of your brain on board. And then T stands for take a breath. So breathing, again, just gives you time, you know, for like the rational parts of your brain to catch up with you. And breathing also activates the parasympathetic nervous system. So it kind of puts the brakes physiologically on the fight or flight response. So just taking lots of deep breaths, always observe. So you go from reacting to observing mode. It's kind of like you just ask yourself, what's happening? What am I doing now? What's happening in my body? Maybe your chest is tight. You know, what am I thinking? What am I feeling? And, you know, is this helpful? Is this important? Is this what I want to be doing and thinking and feeling now? Is this in accord with my values or my goals? So that observe is a key step because it can help you make a different decision. And then once you've observed and made a different decision or decided it was okay to be doing what you're doing, then you can proceed Then you can get on with it. So that's a very quick like tool that you could use. Well, it is a handy tool. Does anything else come to mind in the realm of tools? Yeah, there's another one, RAIN, R-A-I-N. And it's kind of similar, but I just wanted to emphasize the N part. The N stands for non-identification. So sometimes we can get caught up in our stories, like a failure story, you know, or like a fear story or a story of, you know, how we can't do anything right. And so the non-identification, it's good to take time and think, am I getting too caught up in the story? Is this an old pattern for me? And, you know, what could be another way to view the situation that, you know, might be kind or more compassionate or more helpful? How might someone who really cares about me view the situation would be an example. Mm-hmm. So that non-identification, it's like trying not to get too caught up. Oh, that is good. And you're saying the RAI are similar to the STOP we already heard? Yeah, there's also an RAI. And R is to recognize what's happening, just similar to the sort of stop. A is for accept, which is accept what's happening. Because a lot of people try to, you know, just suppress feelings or think, well, you know, I shouldn't. I'm not really feeling anything. Everything's fine when it isn't. So A is just notice what feelings are coming up and try to just accept that they're coming up. They're there anyway. You can't do anything about them. Even if it's a negative thought, it's there anyway. But you can change your relationship to it. And then I is investigate, which is similar to the kind of observe. Mm -hmm. And then N is the non-identification. A mindfulness practice from Sharon Salzberg, who's a mindfulness teacher. Oh, thank you. 
Well, so those are some great tools for sort of in the heat of battle, you know, in the moment when things are happening. I'd love to also hear about, you know, what are long-term daily across the board things that are wise just to do with stress? I'm imagining exercise or maybe your omega threes. What are you think are sort of like the big ones that are really going to make a world of difference in boosting your ability to respond to stress healthfully? I mean, I think exercise and mindfulness are huge. But not everybody, you know, loves exercise. But, you know, it doesn't have to be the most vigorous exercise in the world. It can be yoga stretching. And it's the taking care of yourself. Sometimes exercise and mindfulness can be a way of taking care of yourself. Sometimes you need to be more compassionate to yourself as well because that calms you down. And the other thing is grit. There's a concept, a new kind of research concept of grit by Angela Duckworth in Penn. And she talks about just connecting with your passion and perseverance for long-term goals. So it's kind of like a willingness to be uncomfortable, mm-hmm. kind of making a decision. This is uncomfortable, but it's okay because, you know, I'm choosing this in a way, given the options that are available, choosing to go through this because this has the potential to bring me closer to my goals. That can keep you, you know, more optimistic and more excited. The meditation, mindfulness is meditation, but it's also an attitude to living where you're in the moment, you're compassionate, you're accepting, you're open to letting in your inner experience and whatever that may be. And it's a more expansive kind of an attitude of, you know, feeling connected with the world and other people and the earth rather than disconnected. Mindfulness can actually change the brain. Then eight to 10 weeks of mindfulness, they do magnetic resonance imaging, brain scans in real time. And they show that the amygdala, which is the fight or flight center, can actually shrink with mindfulness. And the prefrontal cortex can get stronger and there can be more connections between the prefrontal cortex and amygdala. So literally practicing the meditation and practicing this attitude as a way of living where you have more of you know, this observer self that's sort of a higher self in a way. It's more compassionate and directing you. Um, in a functional way can actually change your brain so you become more tolerant of stress. Oh, that is so good. And so I'm curious, when we say meditate, you know, and we've talked about this a little bit with Dan Harris and with some others on the show, Uh but I'd like to get your take. So it's like, when you sit down or take whatever posture you do and you say, okay, it's time to meditate now, can you share with us precisely what are you doing and thinking? Sure. And I love Dan Harris's book, by the way, like when he tried all these different, you know, ways Uh to enlightenment. So for me, I think people have a misconception of meditation that can put them off. Two misconceptions are that you have to empty your mind of thoughts and have just a completely blank mind. And, you know, that's very hard to do. And that's not really what the goal is. So that's one misconception. And the other misconception is that you have to kind of have perfect focus. Say you're focusing on your breathing, that you have to have perfect focus on the breathing. And that, again, is always virtually impossible to do. So those aren't the goals of meditation. Meditation can be the most simple is just watching your breathing in the moment, like just watching a full breath all the way in and all the way out, watching the pause between the in-breath and the out-breath. And you might just say to yourself, I am breathing in. So you notice the breath as it goes from the nostrils, down the back of the throat, into the chest, into the belly. And then there's a pause as it comes all the way out again. 
So you try to focus on your breath. But if your mind wanders, which it's going to do because that's just what minds do, you kind of gently touch where it's going. Like you might think about I'm worrying or itchy. And then you just gently guide your attention back to the breath. So it's the process of catching your attention when it wanders and then like kindly directing it back and catching it when it wanders and directing it back. So, you know, it gives you like awareness of your own mind, of the workings of your own mind Mm. and the ability to change things. And that physiologically can be very relaxing, but that's not the goal necessarily. Well, I want to hit on that relaxation point right there because I think Dan Harris used the metaphor that it's like a bicep curl for your brain, which I liked. And so then I'm wondering though, there's a couple of conceptions of meditation is that some folks will say, oh, meditation is like a great thing to do for a break. But what you've just described in the metaphor, a bicep curl for your brain, you know, it kind of sounds like work. You know, it's like you're putting in effort work. to mm-hmm. build a capability that will be with you, you know, every day forever and sort of just enhance you. So I'd like to just get your reflection on that notion. It's like, do you view meditation as something that can serve as a nice rejuvenator or is it something that more so takes some energy but pays you back more than the energy it took from you? Interesting. I mean, I think it's both and I'll tell you why, but I also think it takes more energy in the beginning until you really have that experience, you know, of that kind of grounded feeling of connection with yourself. Once you have that experience and you know what you're kind of looking for in a way, then it gets easier and it becomes more enjoyable Kind of like exercise is, you know, it's similar when you first start exercising, it's hard, but then after a while, it's just, you just crave it. It's just pleasant. But the reason it's both is that on the one hand, you are working hard because, you know, you're catching your attention. It's definitely building a skill and it's active. It's not a passive process. But when you slow down your breathing, you know, you're not necessarily deliberately doing that, but what seems to happen is that your breathing slows down and becomes more rhythmic when you're watching it, just naturally. And then the relaxation response kicks in physiologically in your body. And the slow rhythmic breathing actually kind of slows down our heart rate and it gives a message to our brain, like everything's okay. You can put the brakes on the fight or flight now. You know, you can rest. It's time to rest and digest, they call it. It's kind of the parasympathetic response. So that's why it's both. Physiologically, it kind of has a certain relaxing effect, but it's also mentally very active. Okay, good deal. Thank you. So you would recommend it as a little bit of a break activity to be done that will leave you stronger post-break than weaker to do your next piece of work. Beautifully said. Yeah. And you know, it not only leaves you stronger, but it leaves you more compassionate in a way, Mm -hmm. more tolerant, more patient. It affects, I think, the eight different areas of the brain. Some are about compassion, some are about regulating emotions, some are about focus. So there's huge benefits from it. And that's why, you know, companies like Google and Aetna and General Mills, a lot of like major sort of companies are now turning to mind, training their staff in mindfulness, which is really exciting. It's because of the science, you know, that actually shows these concrete effects. Oh, that is great. And what would be your recommended dosage in terms of minutes per session? So there's a debate about this. In the original studies where they showed all these brain changes that they had, were supposed to meditate for 40 minutes. But I think most people, they actually meditated around 30 on average. So, you know, to get the most brain changes, you would need 30. 
Then there was another study which showed that if you do 20 minutes, you don't get all the brain changes, but you get a lot of them. But what I say to my clients is do five or 10 minutes to begin with, because basically it's the regularity that's important. And just, you know, people get very resistant. Oh, I've got to sit for 40 minutes, you know, especially when they're feeling stressed. So it's just get into the hat, just developing a habit in the beginning. And then you'll want to do more because you'll start getting into this different sort of state. But, you know, you need to want to do it like four or five times a week to, to every day. I think it's better to do it more frequently, even if it is for shorter, and then build it up. So it's part of your daily life. Okay. Well, thank you. And well, now tell us, Melanie, is there anything you want to cover before we talk about your favorite things? I suppose just a little bit from positive psychology. I think I've alluded a little bit that if you get excited about what you're doing, that can help you channel the stress and kind of experience it in a different way. So one way, like if you bring in positive feelings, if you're feeling all worried and hassled and to try to bring in positive feelings, like think about what you're grateful for or think about the people you love or go out into nature and look at, you know, the beauty It can calm down the negative feelings physiologically. And it can also broaden your thinking so you can get like a fuller perspective on everything. Whereas when you're in your fight or flight, you tend to see things in a very narrow way and you may not be able to come up with an alternative viewpoint. So I'd say bring in the positive. That's another skill. Mm -hmm. Oh, good. Thank you. Well, now could you share with us a favorite quote? So I guess I like the one from Eckhart Tolle, who's, you know, a famous sort of mindfulness writer. And he says, whatever the present moment contains, accept it as if you have chosen it. Always work with it, not against it. Mm-hmm. And so it's that embracing the present moment. Like you can't change what's there. And people get into a lot of trouble trying to avoid and trying to, you know, not feel, trying to judge what they're feeling. It's like the cover-up is worse than the crime. But if you can embrace whatever's happening in the present moment, it kind of changes the energy in a positive way. Oh, thank you. And how about a favorite study or experiment or a piece of research? One piece of research I like that's pretty recent is where they had people do a stressful task where they had to give a speech and be judged. And there were three groups. I think one just gave the speech. You know, when we give speeches, we get anxious in preparing. So one group was told just to try to calm down, but one group Mm -hmm. was told to try to interpret their feelings of anxiety as excitement. Because, you know, it's similar. If you go on a roller coaster, it's the same thing physiologically as if you're anxious. And the group that was told to interpret the anxiety as excitement actually did better than the group that was told to calm down. And they did better performance on the speech. Physiologically, they recovered quicker. So I think that's very exciting. It's like a new way of looking at things. Oh, that is exciting. And that's how I do it. That's how I do my speeches. When I feel, you know, those sensations, like, oh, I must be very excited. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Like get into your passion. Uh-huh. Thank you. Sure. All these great ideas you want to share. And how about a favorite book? So I like the book Buddha's Brain by Rick Hansen, because it's got a lot of this mindfulness stuff. It has some of this, you know, neuroscience stuff. And it's sort of about, you know, bringing in well-being and positivity and thriving and savoring and So I think it was, you know, one of the original books that just captured this whole mindset and put a lot of things together. And it's influenced me a lot. Oh, thank you. And how about a favorite tool, whether it's a product or service or software or app, you know, something that helps you be more awesome at your job? So, you know, there's lots of these mindfulness apps online that I like. I don't know if I want to recommend a particular one, but, you know, these big companies 
mindfulness apps that are on your phone can be very helpful. You know, I kind of in a generation, we're a little bit more low tech, but I know a lot of my clients are 20 year olds. And so, you know, apps are the way to go. Okay, sure. Thank you. And how about a favorite habit, a personal practice of yours that helps you flourish? Well, I do yoga and I do two kinds of yoga. I do the kind of Hatha yoga, which is more the warrior poses and the sun salutations. And I find it's very energizing and also very balancing. Then I sometimes do restorative yoga, which is just lying in different stretching poses where you're supported by bolsters. So I think that's been wonderful for me, as well as nature walking and hiking. And I live in Marin County, which, you know, is so beautiful. There's so many beautiful hiking trails. And so, you know, just being away in the quiet of nature next to the babbling stream and the beautiful green tree can really take you away from your worries. But if you don't have that, you can go online and look at pictures of that with music and you know, and so you can get a piece of it that way. Oh, nice. Thank you. And would you say there's a particular articulation of your message, a Melanie original quote that really seems to connect and resonate with folks in terms of getting retweeted or articles shared or, you know, folks vigorously taking notes when you say it? Yeah. I mean, I think it's not what happens to you. It's the way that you react to it that makes all the difference. Okay. Thank you. Sure. And where would you say would be the best place if folks want to contact you or see what you're up to? Where would you point them? So I would point them, I'm actually building a new website. My current website is drdrmelaniegreenbrook.biz and that's got some of my stuff and I'm building a drmelaniegreenbrook.com which should be available in a month or two. They can also go to my blog on psychology today, the Mindful Self Express, self-express. And they can look at my book, The Stress-Proof Brain which is available on Amazon and in bookstores and other outlets. Oh, excellent. Thank you. And do you have a final parting challenge or call to action for those seeking to be more awesome at their jobs? You know, I would say keep growing yourself. Keep becoming more self-aware and self-compassionate. I think the biggest challenge in life is often to love ourselves. It's easier to be compassionate to other people sometimes and to love yourself when you're down. It's easy to love yourself when you're up. You know, and to understand as well the flow of life, that the failure isn't the last word on things. You know, there's always a way to lift yourself up. And if you just stay grounded in knowing what's really the most important values to you or who you are or want to be as a human being, you can let that guide you through the kind of difficult waters of life. Oh, thank you. Okay. Well, Melanie, thank you so much. It's been so handy and I wish you lots of luck with the book and all that you're doing here. Thank you so much for the opportunity. I've really enjoyed it. I really like that notion that if stress is controllable and predictable, you can take it on and not be debilitated by it. So you may very well be capable of tackling more than you thought if you adjust those variables there. So I found that handy. Hope you did too. So again, if you want to check out the show notes or the transcript or the links to items mentioned here in this conversation, that's over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash ep126. And I do recommend you push the subscribe button if you haven't already. So you'll catch our next guest, Matt Bodnar. He's a 30 under 30 Forbes, super achieving kind of a guy. And he is illuminating us on mental models and decision making. So I hope to catch you there. Peace. Thanks for joining us for today's episode. To get the most out of this conversation, visit awesomeatyourjob.com to find today's show notes, transcript, and infographic summary cheat sheet. For more entertaining professional skill sharpening, be sure to subscribe to catch the next episode of How to Be Awesome at Your Job.